Welcome to the Access Church Podcast. Well, today we're going to start a, a brand new sermon series called Blessed. Somebody say, I'm blessed. And, and I want you to, um, to do something every day through the course of this series and maybe the rest of your life. I want you to wake up every morning and I want you to declare that. I want you to, to have that affirmation. Say, I am blessed. Tell your neighbor, I am blessed. And so, you know, this is a word that has its origins in the Bible, but we often see it being used in our modern culture today. Um, you'll often see posts on Facebook where someone will say that they're feeling blessed or someone will share a pleasant experience. Maybe they got a, a big, huge bonus, a promotion. Maybe they the, the purchase of a new car, a new house, or maybe they just got a gift from a loved one and so on. And you'll often see someone put hashtag blessed. Somebody say hashtag blessed. Or how do the cool kids do it? Right? Or is that out already? I don't know. It's hard for me to keep up. But you often, you often see that. And while the word blessed originated in Scripture, you find people that use it regardless of, of their religious uh, uh, views or even the lack thereof. In fact, the Urban Dictionary uh, definition of blessed provides an insight into its current and popular usage. And the Urban Dictionary defines blessed as an adjective for feeling good or having something good happen to you. Now, while that does encompass part of what it means to be blessed, how many of you know that being blessed by God means so much more? Being blessed by God means so much more than, than having a good feeling or having something good happen to you. And, and, and even Christians, you'll, you'll find them using this term to express their appreciation of what they perceived as a gift from God. But the question is, are we right to use that word in this way? And what does it actually mean in a biblical context to be blessed. Now, one of the great debates in the church today is whether the blessing of the Lord refers to financial blessings or, or material possessions, or is it just relegated to our spiritual lives? So the question I want to answer today, is the blessing spiritual or is it material? Let's take a quick survey. How many of you think that the, bless, the blessing of the Lord is just spiritual? Raise your hand. Just a few. Some are like. How many of you feel that the blessing of the Lord is just material? None of you. Oh, y'all are holy, right? Y'all trying to act all holy. And, and so we, there's this debate that the blessing of the Lord is, is just relegated to our spiritual lives. Some believe that it is relegated into our uh, material possessions. Now, this is a fairly modern debate and, and, and has truly only become controversial within the church within the last 30 years. In fact, in the 80s, we had the advent of, of, of Christian television. Now, I know it started before that, but, but this is when Christian television began to be uh, broadly uh, distributed and, and broadly seen, and this gave way to what we know, or who we know as the televangelist. 
and, and also gave way to an abuse of scripture known as the prosperity gospel. Some people name it, claim it, or grab, grab it, grab it, so y'all know it, right? And, uh, and, and we found celebrity pastors or preachers preying on and manipulating people's need and lack of sound biblical literacy. Now, now, when ideological extremism occurs, what often happens is that the pendulum will swing in the opposite direction. So for every extreme, you'll have an opposing extreme. And, and in fact, that, that's kind of what happened. That's what gave way to this prosperity gospel. Now, there was an idea that piousness and poverty went hand in hand. And, and this was uh, originated from a false teaching perpetuated by the Catholic Church. Now, the ideology was used by the Catholic Church to rule or dominate the people. See, the reality is that whoever controls the money controls the people. So the Catholic Church was not interested in, in propagating the gospel. They were interested in, in dominating and taking control of the whole world. So they came in with this teaching, and, and, and you'll often find this mainly in Latin America when they came with the conquistadores and the Jesuits. They came and they began to preach this, this uh, gospel of, of poverty, this, that, that, that piety and poverty went hand in hand. In order for you to be devout, in order for you to be holy, well, then, then you had to be poor. Why? Because they understood that whoever controls the resources or the wealth controls the people. And so the Catholic Church wasn't trying to promote the gospel. And, and forgive me for uh, uh, offending you if you come from that faith tradition or that background. That's, that's not, be, but, but we have a historical record. We have the Inquisition uh, that supports this, this, this view, this argument. They really wanted to rule the world. Well, let me tell you, if you did not know the Vatican is not poor. Do you know that the Vatican is considered one of the most wealthiest economies in the world? In fact, the Vatican has more gold stored up than many smaller nations or countries. Let me also tell you this, that priests aren't poor. But yet, why would they propagate a gospel of poverty while they're living something totally different? Why? Because their goal was not to proselytize the faith of Jesus Christ, they wanted to control the world. And, and so the idea that in order to be devout or holy, you have to be poor, then through the Reformation, transcended into our Protestant circles. In fact, many believe pastors should be poor. Many believe that Christians should be poor and so on. And so the antithesis to this was the prosperity gospel. Like I said, every time you have an extreme view the pendulum will also create an extreme opposing view. So on one side, you have the gospel of poverty, and then on the other side, you have the gospel of prosperity. But the reality is, since we, most believers, lack true biblical literacy and a true biblical understanding, they don't know where, they, they don't know where it sides. Some people believe that, that being poor means that you're more devout or holy or humble. And in fact, within our Latino culture and our, and, and, and our, 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 Latino idioms, you'll often hear people refer to being poor as being humble. 
They'll say things like, welcome to my humble home. What they really mean is they're, well, welcome. We're, we're poor. We don't, we don't have much. But how many of you know that humbleness and poverty have nothing to do with each other? I know people that are extremely wealthy, and they're some of the most humble people you'll ever meet in your life. And I've also met a lot of poor people that are extremely poor that have no humility. They are so proud that they would never be willing to take a handout from anyone. And so this construct that being humble and being poor correlated, go hand in hand, that is not biblical. And so the question is, what is the correct biblical interpretation? Does God want me rich or does God want me poor? How many of you believe that God wants, me, God wants you rich? Raise your hand. So we got four, three. How many of you believe that God wants you poor? Some of you like, don't even want to answer. Well, we're going we're gonna to answer that question. Now, now, there are two common misinterpretations of Scripture that has propagated that, that poverty gospel. There, the, these Scriptures, you'll often hear those that, that believe in order to be devout, to be holy, to be committed, that you have to be, be poor, comes from, from these two Scriptures. In fact, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is here talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. See, there it is, Pastor. The love of money. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. But you'll often hear believers and even non-believers quote it that way. That money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy. He's, telling, he's saying to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. So what has happened in the church, rather than dealing with the quality and the character and the condition of the heart, we rather say, just stay away from money then you don't have to worry about it. The same thing has happened even, even in, in, in our, our physical appearance. You know, we were so big in the church of being modesty. We told women, you can't wear pants. You can't wear short skirts. You can't wear short shorts. Rather than dealing with the condition of the heart of the man, we rather tell you and control you by what you can wear and what you can't wear. Now, I believe that modesty and purity go hand in hand. But do you see what I'm saying? That for instead of dealing with the quality and the condition of a person's heart, oftentimes the church says, well, just stay away from it. Just, just have nothing to do with it. So Paul is telling Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So stay away from all kinds of evil, so just stay away from money. But that's not what he's saying. Now, in order to properly understand this passage, we have to look at the context of what Paul is telling Timothy. So let's look at it in context. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, it says, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life, and anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. So what, what is Paul telling Timothy? Yes, just like today, there's good teaching, there's solid teaching, and there's false teaching. So Paul is telling Timothy, you know what? Don't get caught up in, in, in useless debates. Don't get caught up in, in useless arguments, because the people that want to argue about this stuff, 
itself, they really have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not really teaching the truth. And then it goes on to say, this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. See, we thought that the prosperity gospel was something modern and new, but that's what actually Paul is talking about. He's talking about people that are manipulating the scriptures, manipulating the teachings of Jesus Christ as a show of godliness just to become wealthy. And that's what happens. You have preachers going on television saying, well, if you sow a seed, if you give a seed, if you give, then God's going to give you back. And, and, and the principle is true, but there is an abuse to that. We don't give to get, but we get because we give. And so let me tell you, a true man of God will never ask you for money. I know I shouldn't have to say that, but there are people within our congregation that have been abused by, quote unquote, men and women of God who have asked for money. God will never make you pay for a prophetic word. Sow a seed of $100 and I'll give you a prophetic word. That's not biblical. But do you see how even back then, Paul is telling Timothy, you have to be aware of those people that are manipulating the scriptures, who are trying to use the gospel of Jesus Christ as a show of godliness just to become wealthy. And oftentimes I find myself listening to some of these preachers and they make me feel like I'm the worst Christian of the world because I'm broken, ready to choke. Because they really make you feel like, man, if, if, if you were, if you had the level of relationship that they do, then you would have a mansion and you would have a private jet and then you would be rolling in the Bentley. If you were as holy and devout as I am, then you would be experiencing that. And then all of us that are normal people were listening to this and we think, man, I must not be that good of a believer because I've got more debt than I have income. And that's what was, that's what Paul was cautioning Timothy. You have to beware of those that are trying to use the gospel to line their pockets. That's why one of the things that we do at Access Church is that we don't pass the bucket and we don't make you pass up or we don't make you pass out. I've been to places where they ask for offerings so big you pass out. Why? Because there has been an abuse of the gospel as a display of godliness just to become wealthy. So let's go on. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation. So understand, he's not saying that money is the root of all evil. What he is saying is unbridled ambition. Those that will do anything to make a buck, those that are always looking for the next get-rich scheme, those that are always looking for, for, for the next big, big goal strike. Those that are always looking to try to win the lottery, maybe go to the casino. God, if I win, I'll give the tithe. I don't know. I've never been to the casino, but I, I've seen it on TV. He's talking about your priorities, your ambition. He's not talking about your socioeconomic standing. 
So this is what he's saying. He says, those people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires and that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root, not of all evil, but all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. He, what he's saying is that those that have this unbridled ambition to get rich and to be rich will find themselves trapped into foolish things and foolish desires. You know, a lot of people think, man, if I just had a bigger house, my life would be great. Man, if I just had the right car, if I just had the right Fuji purse. That's what they sell at the pulga, right? You got your Fendi, your Fendi shirt, but the F is backwards and upside down. I lived in Mexico. I seen the Lacoste shirts with the alligator eating the wrong way. All crooked. But why do they do that? Because they're longing for something that they can't afford. And you don't realize that here you are. And, and, and we see this in, in people that win the lottery. Do you know that statistics say that people that win millions of dollars in the lottery within five years, they're back to being broke. And you think, man, if I just go to the God, you know, I don't want to go to the kickaboo, but God, you know, I know you want to bless me. And if this is how you want to do it, God, here I am, send me. And then you buy the lottery ticket, God. I buy the one with seven numbers because seven is perfect just like you, God. People have all kinds of crazy ideas. And they think, man, if, if I just, and that's what Paul is saying. You know what? We have to learn to be content in all things. Notice he doesn't say we have to be content with all things. He said that we have to be content. In other words, our passion and our purpose should not be about possessions. It should be about him. It should be about his presence. It should be about his purposes. It should be about his promises. And he says when, when you lose focus of that, then you're going to find yourselves trapped in a place that you can never get satisfied. We not only see that with, with those that win the lottery, but oftentimes we see that with professional athletes that sign multi-million dollar contracts three to four years after they stop playing, many of them are back to being broke. Just a few weeks ago, I read an article about a former NBA player that they found banging on the streets of Dallas. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to exploit his situation or condition. But those of you that follow basketball would know who he is if I said his name. Going to driving the best cars, eating in the nicest restaurants, living in the biggest houses. And they found him living on the streets. In fact, Mark Cuban tried to give him a shot, but he was so down in, in, in his condition that he's back on the street. And, and, and you, can, you can see that with professionalizing. Why? Because oftentimes what happens in those situations is that we get the wealth, but we don't get the wisdom to administer the wealth. And there's a difference in having wisdom with wealth than having wealth with no wisdom. And so this is what Paul was saying. He's like, hey, you, you've got to have the right passions, the right purpose. Let me tell you, 
As, as someone who has studied economics, macro, micro, someone who has studied business and a business consultant, no one has ever gotten rich trying to get rich. No one has ever gotten rich trying to get rich. You know the people that make it rich is because they pursue a purpose and they pursue a passion. Bill Gates didn't become the, one of the richest men in the world because he wanted to be rich. He was passionate about computers, a.k.a. he was a big nerd. Go nerds. You'll never get rich trying to pursue riches. And that's what Paul says. When you fall into the trap, let me tell you, enough will never be enough. That's what he's talking about to Timothy. He's saying, don't fall into the trap that the world is falling into. That's why so many Christians and believers are in debt. That's why we have prosperity gospels, because we have unbridled passions, because we're always pursuing that next thing, that next car, the next piece of clothes, the next purse, the next thing. You know, just this past week, we were, we were at the outlets, and I saw the Dooney and Burke store. Some of you don't even know what that was. But those of you that are a little bit older, remember that Dooney and Burke was the thing. Before Coach, before Gucci, before Louis, it was a duck. And then that stopped being cool and now became couch. I mean coach. Couch at the pulga. And then coach is Michael Cross. That's at the Pulga, Michael Cross. And that's no cool anymore. Now it's Gucci. Now it's Lou. Do you see what I'm saying? When is enough and enough? And that's what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that you've got to stay for money. He's not saying that God wants you poor. He's saying you have to have the right purposes and the right priorities. Now, the other scripture that is often misinterpreted and propagated by the, the poverty gospel is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. Now, this is also in Matthew 19, but we're going to read Mark's version. It says, in fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There you go, pastor. God doesn't want rich people. It says it right there. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, most Christians get their understanding of Christian tradition, which got their understanding from Catholic culture, which got its understanding from Roman mythology, which is a descendant of Greek mythology. Now, in order for us to truly understand God's blessing and what God wants from our life, we have to go to the source. We have to, we, we have to go to the, 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 its origins. Now, to understand what Jesus is really saying here, so this is the story of the rich young ruler that shows up to Jesus, and he basically asks the question. He says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? What must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to, to, to get what, what you're offering? And, and so what, what happens in the Hebrew culture is, is oftentimes they don't answer your question with an answer. They will answer your question with a question. 
And so to understand what Jesus is really saying, we've got to understand Hebrew culture. And so Jesus here is answering this man's question, not by answering the question, but by asking the question, why? Because he wanted the man to come to a conclusion. He didn't want to give him the answer. He wanted him to discover the answer for himself. Why? Because when we get the answer for ourselves, now we have understanding. If you are just given the answer, you don't get the understanding. If you're just given the thing, you don't get the wisdom that the, that the thing requires for you to administer and so he didn't want to tell him the answer Jesus wanted the man to understand the answer so let's look at this in context Mark chapter 10 starting with verse 17 it says as Jesus started on his way a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him good teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life verse 18 why do you call me good Jesus answered no one is good except God Alone. Now, now Jesus is gangster, right? This young man comes up to Jesus, and, and on the surface, like, man, why would Jesus say that? Why, why would Jesus call him out? He says, good, good master, what must I do, like, to, to inherit uh, uh, eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? See, the problem is, is that this young man is exposing the condition and the quality of his heart because he's putting himself on the same plane as God. He's putting himself. If you notice, he's saying, what must I do? And in fact, in the New King James Version, it says, what good must I do? See, this man thought that he could obtain eternal life by something he would do. Are you with me? And so Jesus says, why do you call me good if there's only one good? And so then Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 20, teacher, I, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. I can imagine this, this guy was like, check, check, check. Done that. Man, I've been, those are all elementary but then what does Jesus do? He exposes his heart because this guy was presenting that he was doing them all. But I love what Jesus does. He lists all the ones that he is doing. Then he exposes the condition, the quality of his heart with the one that he isn't doing. And this is what he says. He says, one thing you lack. Now, I, I think Jesus went from being gangster to being nice. Because I'm sure there was more that he liked. But I believe that he was exposing the, the, the biggest issue of his heart. He says, one thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have. Give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, you got to understand, to put this in modern vernacular, the dude was dripping. Now, if you don't understand that, it's okay. It means you're old. But the dude was dripping. He was wealthy. He had money. And he was coming to Jesus, not, not really wanting an answer. He thought that he was going to come to Jesus with the expression of his wealth. And Jesus was just going to tell him, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That's what he was expecting. But Jesus flipped it on him. Why? Jesus flipped it on him because he didn't understand. Now, you've got to understand 
what was happening within the culture. See, within the Hebrew culture, they believed that material wealth was an affirmation of God's favor over your life. They believed that if you were wealthy, then that meant that you were holy. That meant that God was with you. That meant you were doing all the right things. So if you remember when Jesus and his disciples encountered a, a sick young man, what did they say? They said, Master who sinned. Why? Because they, they saw wealth as an affirmation of God in your life, but they saw poverty or tragedy as an indictment. In other words, if bad things happen to you, then you must be doing something wrong. There's got to be sin in your life. And you know what's sad is that many people believe that today here. Did you hear about so-and-so? They probably got something going on. That boy lost his job again. I'm just saying, I don't know. And then we see somebody that is, is wealthy, and, and that's how the Jews, that's how they saw it. Remember, they saw God as a judge. So if you were wealthy, the, the, the religious assumption was that you were good with God. And this boy was dripping. This boy had it all. He thought that he was going to show up in Jesus. Jesus was going to give him a VIP ticket into eternal life. Boy, you got it. You're, you're, you're automatically in. Why? Because that was the religious assumption. Because... They believed that if you were wealthy, then God was with you. So let me say this. The blessing over your life is, not, is no more an affirmation of your spiritual life, of your ministry, of your anointing, than poverty is an indictment on your character. What do I mean by that? Just because things are going good for you doesn't mean that God is really with you. And just because things are going bad with you doesn't mean that God is not with you. Because the blessing of God isn't because we're good. The blessing of God is because he is good. And so this young man comes up. He thought, Jesus, man, I'm, I'm, uh, look at, look at, uh, this, this is who I am. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make it. Yeah, I'm going to get that VIP ticket. And, and so Jesus exposes. It says, at this the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, but let, let me backtrack. Verse 21, I love this. I, I skipped over this and I got to point this out. Verse 20 says, teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever had somebody look at you and you just know that, they love you. Isn't that the best feeling in the world? And, and I love the fact that Mark takes intentionality and, and, and he puts that in there. Why? Because Jesus wasn't trying to expose him. Jesus wasn't trying to embarrass him. See, what, one thing you'll know about Jesus, Jesus will always confront you with the truth, but he will do it in love. And the problem is oftentimes we as, as believers, we want to confront people with the truth, but we don't want to do it in love. We want to do it in condemnation. And then we wonder why our family, our friends, our coworkers want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with church when all they get is condemnation. We've got to take a page out of Jesus's book. When he saw that he was in the wrong, he wasn't confronting them with, with condemnation. The Bible says that he looked at him and loved him. He says, one thing you lack. He said, boy, if you just get this, if you get this, then you'll be good. It says, he walked away sad. 
Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. There you go, pastor. Once again, we see that, that God does not want rich people in heaven, right? That's what it says. Maybe. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Because Jesus was directly attacking one of their religious paradigms or their assumptions that if you were wealthy, that meant that God was with you. So even the disciples, they can't remember. They were the one that asked, well, who sinned? Whose fault was it? Why is this young man sick? Who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Why? Because they saw God as a judge. So the Bible says when Jesus says this, they're like, and you can see by their answer because they're like, well, then who can be saved? Who can... If this young man who is wealthy and has all these riches and is influential and affluential, then who can be saved? Now, you've got to look at passage of Scripture within context. The narrative of the story before this was when Jesus was sitting around teaching, and the Bible says that all these little kids came running up to him, and the disciples like, no, no, don't bother Jesus. He's too busy preaching, teaching. You know what? That's what I I You know, and let me just put that out there. It doesn't bother me when the kids run up here. It doesn't bother me. It bothers the religious people. Yes, we've got to teach our kids how to behave and how to comport themselves within church. I get that. But I love the fact that these kids had so much confianza. That's the Greek word for. With Jesus. Because if he looked at the rich young ruler with love, imagine how he looked at the kids. And let me tell you, kids know when you love them, even without saying a word. And so they were running, and the disciples, no, no, don't bother the master. No, no, don't bother him. No, no, no. And what does Jesus say? Let the children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say to you that you must have faith like a child. So when you look at this, what is Mark doing? He's contrasting the attitude of a child and the attitude of the rich young ruler. Why? Because the rich wrong ruler thought it was about what he could do and about what he had. And Jesus said, no, dude, you got it all wrong. Why? Because these children, they can't do anything. They haven't done anything. And they don't have anything. And yet the kingdom of God is about them. See, everything in the Bible has meaning and purpose. And so the disciples were even more amazed. Verse 26, who can then be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. But let's go back to verse 25. It says, verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is for, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There we are. The camel through the eye of a needle. See? Essentially, that's impossible. And so when you look at the surface, what Jesus is saying, just as it is impossible for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. That's what it says, right? So once again, God doesn't want rich people in heaven. So give me all your money so you can go to heaven. That's a joke. I knew I shouldn't go to that church. All they want is money. That's not what he's saying, though. But, but there's two common misinterpretations of this. And, and, and these two misinterpretations 
essentially are trying to soften the blow of what Jesus is saying. So one misinterpretation is that for the Greek word camel and, it, and the Greek word for rope, is the difference is just one letter. So it's camelon and camelon. So some people believe that this was a misinterpretation or a mistranslation, that Jesus wasn't actually saying that the camel couldn't go through the eye of needle. He was actually saying a rope, which essentially is kind of the same thing, but not quite as impossible. But there's no evidence. And, and I believe that God is so providential, and, and we would have to exclude the providence of God for him to allow a misinterpretation so grave in Scripture. I can't see God doing that. I really believe that when God, Jesus said that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye, or easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man, he really meant the camel. Well, how do I know that? Why? Because even in the rabbinical writings in the Talmuds, they repeat the same thing. In fact, this was a common idiom within Middle Eastern culture. But the Persians would say it this way. They would say that it was easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. Why would Jesus use camel? Because the camel was the biggest animal known to them. And for the Persians, the elephant was the biggest animal known to them. But it meant the same thing. So when Jesus said camel, he meant camel. Tell your neighbor, when Jesus said camel, he meant camel. Now another misinterpretation, and, and this has is, this is become more, more popular, is that they're saying that they're talking about a lower gate or a small gate within the door. Now this theory did not come about until the 9th century and then was propagated by William Shakespeare in the 11th century where he, he talked about the eye of the needle being a gate. So the idea was that there is this big gate that people would go into, but then it had a little door. <coughs> and so the idea that people are saying is that what Jesus was talking about was the little door. Just like a camel couldn't get through the little door fully loaded, he would have to get on his knees to go through the little door. That's what he's talking about. But let me tell you, there is no archaeological evidence for Jesus talking about a gate. So if you hear that from a pastor or preacher, know that that is not correct. What Jesus meant when he said camel, he meant camel. Tell your neighbor, camel means camel. So the idea that Jesus is talking about here is essentially a mathematical and physical impossibility. So he's saying it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Peter says, well, then who can be saved? So does that mean that God doesn't want rich people in heaven? He wasn't talking about rich and wealth. It's when Jesus says, he, when he's talking about the rich man, he's talking about someone being rich in self-righteousness. Remember the Bible says that Jesus is rich in mercy. And so when Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to the, enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because this young man thought that he could get into heaven because of how much money he had. He thought because of his influence and his affluence that he could get into it. And Jesus said, no, you've got it all wrong. You cannot get into heaven on anything you can do. That's why he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible because the only way that you can inherit eternal life, the only way that you can get into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. So it's not about how much money he had. 
It was about him being rich in his self-righteousness. He thought that he could get in on his own merits. And Jesus saying, no, but let, let, I, I love Peter. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up and he says, we have left everything to follow you. Remember I talked about the pendulum? The rich man thinks he gets in because of what he doesn't have and Peter gets in because he doesn't have anything. You have the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. And I imagine Jesus is probably, you know, shaking his head like, dude, you still don't get it. It's not about what you have, and it's not about what you don't have. What was Jesus saying? The only way that you can get to heaven is through me. It's not about what you have. It's not about what you don't have. It's about who you know. And then Jesus says, verse 29, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come into your life. Notice this. What is Jesus saying? He's talking about the principle of sowing and reaping. He said, anyone who gives everything up for me in this age will be blessed in this age. But not only in this age, but also in the next age. So let's answer the question. Does Jesus want you blessed here? He's saying that. He says, whatever you give up in this age. Now, he's not telling you to give everything up. That's not what he's saying. Remember, Jesus is always talking about the quality and the condition of our heart. What he's saying is that you and I as believers, as disciples of of the kingdom of God, as followers of Jesus, we have to live like nothing belongs to us and it all belongs to him. And let me tell you, when you live that way, that brings a freedom to your life that you've never experienced before. Why? Because when your money is your money, that means your bills are your bills. But when you live and your money is his money, that means your bills are not your bills, your bills are his bills. You no longer have to worry about your own provision. It's all about him. And so what he's saying is that you have to live in a way that everything you own Belongs to him. So if God says, give away your car, what are you going to do? Give away your car. Give away your house. Give away. I remember years ago, I had read these, 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 um, these testimonies of, of pastors and, and missionaries. And, and we were missionaries in Mexico, and we needed a vehicle really bad. And I remember I told God, God, you've never given me a car. You know what God told me? You've never given a car away. Well, true. You want to get all technical and stuff, I guess. Like, says you can. You'll never be able to receive what you don't have the faith to give. You'll never be able to receive what you lack the faith to give. If your faith is a thousand dollars, you'll only ever receive a thousand dollar blessing. Because your faith is the limit on what you're able to receive. Now, understand, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm preaching the principles of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying that whatever you give up for me on this earth, you're going to reap on this earth. But you're not only going to reap it on this earth, on this age, but you're also going to reap it in the age to come. 
Does it not say that? It says, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. But notice something he says. Jesus is still attacking this religious assumption. He's saying, along with persecution. He's saying, yeah, you're going to be blessed in this life, but you're also going to be persecuted in this life. Why? Because he wants you to know that it's not about what you have or you don't have. It's not about if everything's going good for you or things are going bad for you. It doesn't matter that God is still good, that God is still with you. In this life, you'll be blessed, but you'll also have trials and afflictions in this life. So to answer the question that we started out with, is the blessing of God financial or physical, material, or is it just spiritual? Now, to understand that, we've got to see how this word is employed in the Old Testament. And, and oftentimes, in the Old Testament, the word blessed or blessing is often found to refer to a physical manifestation of God's favor. For example, Genesis 28.3, may God Almighty bless you and give you many children and may your descendants multiply and become many nations. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he has given you. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes a person poor. Oh no. Now, some of you get really spiritual. Say, Pastor, he's talking about spiritual blessings. No, when you look at the etymology of that word in the original language in Hebrew, I just brought out the word etymology. Look it up. I learned it this week. It actually means physical wealth. It says the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich. Say, I am blessed. And he adds no sorrow with it. Why does the blessing of the Lord make rich and adds no sorrow? Why? Because when God gives you wealth, he also gives you the wisdom. And when you have wisdom with the wealth, then you have no sorrow. Now let's look at Psalm 112, verse 1 and 3. It says, praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. They themselves will be poor. Right? That's what it says, verse 3. They themselves will be poor. Or how do you say in Texas? Poor. They'll be poor. No, it says, they will be wealthy and their good deeds will last forever. Proverbs 14, 11, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the godly will flourish, will prosper. So from these examples in the Old Testament, it reveals to us that being blessed can take the form of God granting physical, financial, material prosperity. And that's how we often use it, yes. So the question is, is the blessing of the Lord physical, financial, or material? And the answer is, really? Yes. Let's try it again. So the blessing of the Lord is financially and material, and the answer is, God wants to bless every area of your life. So the, does God's blessing mean spiritual blessing? Well, let's look how it's used in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. 
Luke 145, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Ephesians 1.3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So the answer is both. The blessing of God on your life refers to both material and financial blessings as well as spiritual blessings. God wants to bless every area in your life. And isn't that what Jesus said? Let, let, let's go back to what he said. He said, verse 29, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes. What is homes? Physical, financial blessing. But then he says, you'll also get brothers, sisters, mothers, children. What is he talking about? He's talking about relational blessings. God wants to bless you financially. God wants to bless you materially. But God also wants your relationships to be blessed as well. And it's also spiritual. Why? Because he says, in the age to come. So God will bless you here in the age to come. So I'm going to close with this. God wants to bless. And I love the way Pastor Robert Morris in his book, The Blessed Life, says it this way, that the blessing of God will permeate every area and facet of your life. Yes, God will bless you financially. God will bless you relationally. And God will bless you spiritually. But this is what I've come to understand, that God can only bless what you submit and surrender to him. That means that you can be blessed in one area and not be blessed in another area of your life. God can only bless any area that you surrender and submit to him. So you can be blessed spiritually and not blessed financially. Why? Because you can't give 10%. I know you're thinking, man, God, 10%. See, when God asks you to give 10%, some of you walk away like, the rich young ruler like man that's a lot of money you know how many hours I had to work this week to give God 10% of my money see that's the problem you're still thinking of things as your money and not having the attitude that Peter has that everything I have belongs to God but if you want the blessing of God to rest on your life in every area then you have to submit and surrender every area. If you want your marriage blessed, you've got to submit and surrender your marriage. If you want your children blessed, you've got to submit and surrender your children. If you want your health blessed, you have to, you have to submit and surrender your health. If you want your finances blessed, you have to submit and surrender finances. If you want your business blessed, what do you have to do? You have to submit and surrender. Say, God, everything I have belongs to you. Because any area, any area that you submit and surrender to God, the blessing of the Lord will rest. What does that mean? That means the blessing will activate. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to define what the blessing is, and we're going to show you how the blessing operates and activates in your life. Are you ready for that? So this week, every day, I want you to get up and say, I am blessed. And I want you to know that you are blessed financially, that you are blessed relationally, and you're also blessed spiritually.
That's what you're saying. God, your blessing blesses every area. And I want you to think, is there an area of your life that maybe you haven't submitted to the Lord? Maybe your plans, your purposes, your, your career. Maybe, maybe you feel like God is calling you into the ministry and you're struggling. Like, God, do I want to pursue ministry? But God, I really want to be a doctor. God, I really, I, I really want to be an engineer. I don't know. I want to be a veterinarian. I don't know. Maybe you need to submit that area. Your plans, your purposes, your priorities. Maybe your business. Maybe your family. Maybe your children. You say, God, everything I have for you. Well, let me tell you one thing. So one day, I took God at his word. I said, okay, God. You said, I haven't received a car because I haven't given a car. Guess what I did? What do you think I did? I gave a car. And what do you think I got? A better car. Because the principles of the kingdom of God are true. Now, I'm, you don't give to get. Don't say, well, I want a better car, so I'm just going to give it. No. What I did, that doesn't work. I know somebody said, well, I gave God $20,000 and I went bankrupt. Yeah, because you're a bozo. No offense. You know I love you, right? He's like, I don't feel the love. Let me look at him with love like Jesus looked at him. Okay, there you go. No, that's not what you do. You don't just give it to get. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that you live on a level where you say, God, whatever you ask of me, if you ask of me, I'll give it to you. Everything I have belongs to you. And I've given away three cars, and every time that I've given away a car, God has given me a better car. I've given away iPads, and every time I give an iPad away, God has given me a better iPad, a new iPad. I've given computers away. I've given money away. I've sown it in the kingdom of God because the principles are true. So whatever area in your life you submit and surrender to God, God, everything that I am belongs to you. The blessing of God rest on that area of your life. Why not have the blessing of God in every area? So let's just give it all to Him. Can you do that? Will you stand as we pray? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God. Thank you because you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God, because your favor and your blessing produces wealth in us because your word says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow. God, we receive that today. God, and we determine to walk in the fullness of your blessing, the fullness of your favor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. And a special thanks to those who have given to support this ministry. Without you, none of this is possible. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe and share it on social media. Thank you for listening. God bless you.